The works of Edgar Allan Poe made their way to France in the mid-1840s, and a certain Jules Verne became quite familiar with him over the years. And he published an article on him and his works in 1864, dedicating an entire chapter to Pym. In this article, Verne marveled at Poe's mastery of suspense and horror, like I think the rest of us have over time. And while also in awe of the ending, he said, quote, And that's how the narrative breaks off. Who will ever take it up again? Somebody more daring than I am. Somebody bolder at pushing on into the realm of things impossible. So, in fact, Verne almost suggests that Poe is creating a new genre of literature. One that comes from, quote, the sensitivity of his excessive mental processes, a combination of the strangeness of the characters and situations with a sense of realism and explanation by physical laws. So perhaps Verne is touching upon what we did the last time and calling Poe the first science fiction author, or if at least he was around today, he might throw in Poe's name for that particular debate. However, his success of the Extraordinary Voyages series led his career down writing fiction, not this kind of literary criticism or speculation over which the next several decades would bring him global fame and renown. Since we've covered Verne a number of times on the podcast before, we won't go into too much detail about his early life, but this is a later work that we're covering. It would be useful to mention a few notable events. In particular, on March 9th of 1886, Verne was walking just outside of his house when two shots are fired at him. The first misses, but the second strikes him in the leg, and the shooter screams out at him, You bastard! And as Vern hobbles after the would-be assassin, he recognizes the shooter. It's his nephew Gaston, who is promptly arrested, and tells the police he shot him for family affairs of such sensitivity that I'm unable to divulge them. Gaston was eventually sent to an asylum for the rest of his life in lieu of a trial, 56 years, and the incident was suppressed and hushed up. Gaston's motivation is still unclear, but Butcher, pretty much the definitive modern Burns scholar, speculates that money or sex were likely to have been involved. Burn never recovered from the injury, which was made worse due to poor surgical procedures and care, and he suffered a number of personal losses around this time. Just eight days after the shooting, his longtime publisher Hetzel died, and his mother died the following year in 1887. In addition to taking a physical toll, the attack and these events took a toll on Verne mentally, and Butcher states that his novels after 1887 show a marked drop in quality and sales, though they still sold enough to draw a sufficient income for him to live comfortably. It was in this period, in 1897, where Verne, more than 30 years after saying otherwise, would be the one to take up the story of Pym again with Sphinx of the Ice Realm, sometimes translated as an Antarctic mystery. Yeah, there wasn't enough of a fan fiction community at that time, so (laughs) no, just had to pick up the slack. Yeah, there there definitely wasn't really any. (laughs) I think we can think of a couple early examples, but this is definitely one of the earliest of somebody using somebody else's, I wouldn't say intellectual property, might not be a good way to describe how things worked back then, but definitely somebody else's characters and story and doing a fan sequel to them. This one was number 44 in the Extraordinary Voyages series of a total of 54 published in Verne's lifetime. 
The translation we read was the Frederick Paul Walter version, which is the first complete translation into English, and it also follows the example set by Butcher's translations of the more well-known works in that it has a very thorough introduction, even more thorough footnotes, and includes as appendices not only Verne's writings on Poe, but also Pym in its entirety. So if you want a copy of Pym and its sequel, you can just pick this one up and it's all going to be there. Yeah, along with a lot of notes. Yeah, a lot of notes. Mostly on Verne, but some on Pym as well. Yep. Some good. There's some good commentary on the pen and the afterword. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Really good edition of the text. The novel itself starts in the port of Christmas Harbor in the Kerguelen Islands, which we saw briefly in Pym. And Byrne mentions the same mosses, lichens, and strange cabbage, as well as the birds and their rookeries. The narrator, a Mister Jorling. I wasn't entirely sure how to pronounce his name. Jorling. Jorling. Um, I, I I just figured the he's probably silent. Yeah. <laughs> but he's talking with the innkeeper there, a Fenimore Atkins, who had lived on the island for 20 years. Jorling's from Connecticut, has no family, as opposed to Atkins, who has 10 kids and is rooted on the island. And his inn, the Green Comorant, is well-stocked and a booming establishment. And this aspect of the novel, which is only at the beginning here, is one that I really liked with these odd yeah. characters operating bars and inns Me in these too. remote yeah. parts of the world. Yeah, I thought I was doing really good with this book because I I made a lot of headway like all Christmas Day and the day after. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is this will go through like a breeze. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't quite as smooth as I was hoping, but it's still uh, it's a really great beginning, actually. Yeah, it's, it's fun. And I think it'd be cool to have a novel that explores this kind of culture and setting more in depth. But we don't really get that here because we're going to be leaving shortly. So these two characters get talking about one ship they hope returns soon, that of a Len Guy. The ship is the Halbrain. Christmas Harbor is moderately temperate in the winter regarding the cold, but is rocked by these dramatic storms, and as such, no vessels are currently berthed there during the winter. And when the Halbrain gets in, whenever that is, it's Jorling's ride off the island. Jorling quotes from Poe and thinks he's brilliant and marvels at his chronicles of human abnormality and he spends some time observing the birds to kill time including the same penguins and albatrosses and this is the first of many 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 references to edgar Allan poe and throughout the entirety of the novel you can just tell jules verne loves poe and he can't help himself but putting in these little asides every now and then about how Poe is, like, the greatest author. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's what made reading this for me a lot of fun, because it's otherwise a pretty straightforward adventure story. But a, a lot of the Poe tie-ins, I, I think, are really fun. And it's fun to see mm-hmm. Vern having fun, too, with yeah. what's likely one of his favorite authors. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's very charming to see Vern just fanboying <laughs> over yeah. Poe. Yeah, and that's absolutely what he's doing here. And it's like not just like this one part at the beginning to set up the story. It's like the entire novel. It's it's yeah. great. And one thing that Walter and Butcher both do is they both go to the original source that is Burns' original manuscripts, not the published French edition. Right. Which they do refer to because in some cases the published editions, they do improve on the manuscript because there was editorializing and Vern himself did some editorializing, but... For comparison's sake, it's quite interesting. And one thing that I noticed was pointed out was that in the original manuscript, there was actually a lot more weird sort of speculation and like almost Poe-like 
psychology in there. Yeah. But Vern ended up taking a lot of it out because probably he realized that it wasn't really his style. And even Walter said, well, some of it's kind of like just going around in circles, but it's just cool because Vern was actually, you know, he was he was getting really into the macabre feeling and stuff like that. And even the nature mm-hmm. of Jorling at first was supposed to be a Poe-like character. And that mm-hmm. changed as the book sort of went on in development uh, to being sort of a more practical not very imaginative character. Right. And we'll see how that plays out later on. But the Halbrain eventually does come into port, and Len Guy is on board, who is a rather rugged sailing-type man. And the bosun of the ship, Hurley Gurley, is told that Jorling <laughs> wants passage. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> so rather than the rugged and serious nature of Guy, Hurley Gurley likes drinking and smoking and having a good old time, and says he'll get passage for Jorling on board, even if Guy doesn't typically want passengers on the ship. They might be going west to Tristan de Cunha, which is in the direction Jorling would like to go in, and Jorling goes to contact Guy himself, but he's unable to find him. He receives word from Atkins that Guy says no passengers on board, and this doesn't deter Jorling one bit, and when Guy comes aboard the island, Jorling confronts him, and Guy is still steadfast in his refusal. Jorling says he wants to go anywhere, even the Antarctic seas. And the mention of this startles Guy, and he kind of pricks his ears up in surprise. They start talking about the poles, and Guy seems particularly interested to hear from Jorling that there is an American expedition that has made a great deal of progress in that area. Guy mentions the novel Pym, and how it starts on Nantucket, and seems to hint that maybe it is a legitimate account and not a novel, like stated in its preface. But... Guy still doesn't want him on board, and for the next few days, it looks like they're going to pack off without him. But at the last minute, Guy changes his mind and tells Jorling to be on board tomorrow morning. Jorling figures that it has something to do with Connecticut and Nantucket, and he bids Atkins goodbye and goes off with Guy's ship. The ship is incredibly organized and efficient. The cabin's furnishings are sparse but sufficient for all the crew and it operates under the first officer, Jem West, under his disciplinarian leadership. And he's very knowledgeable about running a ship, and very capable, including proper stowage, so no problems like the Grampus are going to be happening aboard the Halbrain here. Several days into the voyage, Jorling asks Guy why he eventually changed his mind on letting him on board, and Guy says it's because he's an American, an American from Connecticut, and Guy said that he might be acquainted with Arthur Gordon Pym himself. And Jorling is surprised at this, and Guy says it wasn't a novel at all, but a real account. And Jorling is just completely astonished and says that while everybody thinks it's a novel, nobody would take it as being a real account. But when Pym's narrative came out, Guy tried to track down Edgar Allan Poe, but Poe happened to be out of the country. So with Pym dead and Poe gone, the only lead Guy had to go on is Dirk Peters. So he went to Illinois to track him down, but had no luck in finding him. Captain Guy had found the letter left in a bottle by the captain of the schooner, the Jane, and suspects there might be other survivors of the native attack and that they need to be rescued. Jorling thinks this is all very strange, but does think it's odd that both the captain of the Jane and this captain are both named Guy. And as Jorling is musing on, on all of this, the volcanoes of Prince Edward Island, not the same one in Canada, 
come into view. Yes, this is Prince Edward's Island. Yeah, so right. It's not the same. <laughs> <laughs> and Jorling then summarizes the novel Pym for us in the next chapter, commenting that it's all quite believable until the Antarctic parts, where it really gets into the fantastic. And as he's going through the beginning scenes where Pym is trapped, he's also on the edge of his seat with suspense. And I think a lot of us were at that point. Jorling begins calling the narrative really far-fetched after they get rescued and says that no one had ever gotten to such southern latitudes that Poe describes. And Jorling was also one frustrated by the ending and continues musing that if they had indeed made it that far, wouldn't they be hailed as heroes? And it's unlikely that any survivors if there were any, would still be alive down there after all these years. One day, they spot an albatross and a large unknown thing in the water, and the bosun thinks it's an iceberg. Guy views it through a spyglass, and it is indeed an iceberg, one that must have been massive to still be frozen this far north. Guy is intensely monitoring it, and as they get closer, they see a corpse sliding off of it, and they pick him up. The body is frozen solid, and as they get it on board, Guy recognizes him. It's Patterson, and in his pocket are pages from a diary. It says Guy and five sailors are still alive on Solal Island, and this yeah. jogs Jorling's memory of Patterson being the mate on board the Jane. So I didn't actually remember Patterson from the from Pym, and I didn't actually mention him in my summary. So, but yes, Patterson was one of the crew members on board the Jane Guy. Yeah, and he does, he's not really gone into much in the poe novel no if, if really at all i think it's just offhand mentioned like i said i didn't even remember his name so yeah <laughs> yeah but now the evidence is clear that Pym was real and not a novel and the captain guy of the Pym novel is the brother of len guy of the ship that he's currently isn't it on. isn't it a really crazy coincidence that yeah. they they ran across patterson though yeah like, holy crap like right away that's such a massive coincidence yeah in all that water <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, very <laughs> unlikely, but I guess stranger things have happened, as we've seen. Yeah, yeah. The sailmaker on board, Martin Holt, was also the brother of one of the seamen who died on the Grampus. Now Guy is ready to take action, and the fact that he wouldn't take passengers on board is now completely clear to Jorling. Tristan de Cunha is still close, and a good place to stock up on supplies. And the time of year is right to go further south. Some background on Tristan de Cunha is given, and it's rather international character. Again, another cool-sounding place that would be, like, a neat novel to explore the culture of, but we don't really get into it that much here because we're only there for a short period of time. It's got a relatively mild climate. They pull in on September 5th, and Guy is in a rather solemn mood. There are three islands in the group, Tristan being on top of a volcano. The waters are relatively calm with few storms, but... It looks like they won't have the provisions to make an Antarctic voyage, and Jorling exchanges a bit of banter with Glass, who is the proprietor of the establishment there, that Pym also mentions being the administrator there when he visited several years prior. Jorling decides to stay on board the schooner and head with them to the Falklands for more significant repairs and provisions. Glass remembers the other Captain Guy in the Jane when they stopped by 11 years ago, and Jorling fills him in on the fate of the ship. Glass is disappointed they didn't discover the auroras, but Jorling tells him about the fact that Guy and the other sailors might still be alive. Captain Guy doesn't come on board the island and prefers to stay in his cabin with his books and his map, including a copy of Pym, which will serve as the guidebook. 
So they set out for the Falklands, and Jorling gives a history of Antarctic expeditions being able to provide an update since Pym was published. Captain Cook's expedition from 1772 and Krusensturm and Lisiansky in 1803 are mentioned, as are the discoveries of the South Shetland Islands, the South Orkney Islands, and Trinity Island in 1818-20. to the 1822 expedition by James Waddell was the route that Pym would take, and in 1829 to 1830, Captain Morrell reaches New South Greenland. In 1839, Balony discovers the Balony Islands, and to rescue the Jane survivors, they would have to get 550 miles past the furthest documented expedition. On the voyage to the Falklands, Jorling looks for an opportunity to talk to Guy, and when they finally do talk, they talk about Pym and the voyage, and Jorling asks if he can join him on the mission, to which he says yes. They reach the Falklands, and there's some background on their history, with it now being in British hands. The Falklands strike Jorling as being a lot like Norway, with its sharp geography, and the port is quite busy, providing them with a good place to inspect and repair the ship. The main export of the islands is wool from sheep, and Guy says he's working on recruiting more sailors. Here they triple the size of the crew, taking in 19 rather internationally broad crewmen. Guy is approached by a mysterious figure who wants on board, says he's been south and his name is Hunt from America. He's short and darker colored. His hands look like they're incredibly strong. Is it Peters? Stay tuned to find out. <laughs> I wrote the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So whoever it is, He's been on the Falklands for three years, keeping a low profile, and Guy lets him come on board, departing for Antarctica on the 27th. Guy charts out the route they'll follow, which is Weddell's path, trying to stick to the Jane's route as close as possible. As they proceed, they also don't see the auroras, and Hunt is distinguishing himself quickly through his strength and ableness on board. They pass through the South Georgia Island and continue towards the South Sandwich Islands, and make their way to Thule Island, which is now the southernmost island known at this point. There is no evidence of humans there, just birds, so they decide to push on further south. Still no evidence of humans, they club a few penguins for food, and it appears the ice is breaking off earlier, giving them earlier access in the season to the southernmost lands, almost like their luck is divine in nature. I think Vern finds penguins like both funny and annoying, because every time he talks about penguins... He just talks about how noisy they are and, like, makes some kind of weird joke. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> be nice to the penguins. <laughs> this is funny. Very odd animal. So there's quite a lot of, of, of uh, funny little jokes throughout that kind there of are. liven mm -hmm. up things a little bit. Yeah, and while this novel, I don't think, reaches some of the heights that his other works do, it never really bogs down for me. And compared to some of the adventure stories we read last time, Reading a middle-of-the-road yeah. adventure novel written by a talented author is just such a much more pleasant experience than somebody Yeah, one thing write. I like about Byrne is he seems so, like, confident. You know, like, he just seems so, like, yeah. you're in good hands. He's just going to guide you somewhere, and he's going to tell you about cool things. There might not be a lot of human conflicts, which is something I always complain about when I read Byrne. Like, yeah. maybe a little less so with 20,000 Leagues, but because <laughs> I just like that. Like, I want to see more of that. Just kind of how I am, I guess. And, but even though there's not a lot of human conflict, he really does 
he just guides you so well. And you're just, you feel like you're in really good hands of somebody who knows what he's talking about. The translator points out that he did tons of research and he barely slips up. And when there's a slip up, it's usually due to his editors or translators. Yeah. And his editors at this point wasn't Hessel, his longtime publisher. No. So he had a different group of people editing this one than, than his previous works. But Hunt in particular is completely focused on the South, silent and steady. And as whales start to show up, Guy pushes on past them, much to the dismay of the other sailors who want to cash in. One in particular, Hearn, is loudly voicing his displeasure, but is quickly shut up by West. The Americans have this whaling spirit in them, but the British seem to be more restrained, and they're still able to catch plenty of other fish for the crew to eat. And Jules sneaks in some ecological commentary here on how it might be dangerous to overdo the hunting of seals and whales. (laughs) Yeah. Very astute for this time, because, I mean, that's essentially what happened. On November 30th, they cross into the Antarctic Circle, and after they clear the 70th parallel, Hurley Gurley says they should have a polar christening ceremony. As they continue, though, the wind stops altogether and then gets incredibly rough in all directions. But fortunately, unlike the Grampus, the cargo is properly stowed, so no shipwrecks, and the crew make preparations for weathering the storm. Hunt again distinguishing himself for his hardiness and knowledge of the situation. The storm surges, and Holt, the master sailmaker, is swept in the seat and is flailing around, and suddenly Hunt just jumps in the sea to try to save him, and powers through the storm, grabbing him and bringing him back on board, much to the astonishment of all the crew who witnessed the entire incident. Without missing a beat or saying a word, Hunt gets back to fixing up the ship, and after they're out of danger, he seems very reclusive and actively avoids Holt. They continue along Weddell's route, and the ice structures start to get more large and surreal, just like Pym described. There is still an abundance of food near the ice barrier, and a blizzard comes in when they get sight of it, and after trying to scout for an entrance, a few days later the blizzard passes and they are able to find an opening to the southeast, leading to open sea. From this point forward, Pym is their only guidebook. Jorling and Hurley Gurley get to talking about reaching the pole, Since they're on a rescue mission, Jorling feels it would be irresponsible to expose the survivors to further risk after they pick them up. Guy probably won't do it, but the recruits picked up at the Falklands are starting to complain even louder after they've gone past the Antarctic Circle. That night, Jorling hears this mysterious voice saying they mustn't forget Pym. Poor Pym. (laughs) They reach Bennett's Island, as described by Pym on the 21st. And like Pym, they discover a large quantity of the sea cucumber, and are on heightened alert for any native activity. Some men disembark, and Hunt leads the way like he was a guide, and encounter the same tortoise-like carving that they encountered in Pym. There are no other pieces of evidence, however, of the men, so they decide to push on toward Salal Island. Before they leave, however, they find a plank board from what appears to be the Jane, likely scattered from the explosion, but Jorling sees no evidence of the strange vegetation or animals mentioned by Pym. Hunt, however, keeps looking at Jorling strangely as he is reading and referencing Pym. When they reach the Salal Island shore, there doesn't seem to be any activity there, and the Halbrain anchors three miles offshore just in case they are ambushed. The island is about nine to ten miles in circumference, and they send a disembarking party with Hunt to reach the village of Klok Klok. Jem is to stay with the ship no matter what and turn back to the Falklands if trouble arises. 
Jorlin goes with the landing party, and the countryside is largely black from scattered lava discharge. None of the strange vegetation and rocks mentioned by Pym are there. There's no signs of the forest-covered hills, no sign of the bizarre streams, and when they reach the site of the village, there's nothing there. Jorling speculates there was an earthquake, which radically shifted the topography of the land. Volcanic activity in the area would make this possible, and Hunt seems to agree. Since Pym mentions other islands in the area, and evidence of other tribes, it might be logical to assume that the natives migrated off the island. Some ways away, they find the site of a landslide, with the remains of thousands of people in it. It appears to be several years old, and the note from Patterson said they had left the island only seven months prior, so the people they're looking for would not be among the dead here. Among the ruins here, they see Tiger's metal tag, with Jorling pointing out that he disappears from the narrative, apparently surviving to this point, which seems pretty dubious, but Byrne goes into the full explanation later, which we'll get to, but this is one major sticking point I have with his continuation. But the hillside where the natives had laid the trap for Pym seemed to be totally gone, as are the strange caverns drawn by Pym at the end. Guy says there is nothing else they can do here, and says they'll set back tomorrow before winter sets in. Hunt says, what about Pym? And it's the same mysterious voice that Jorling heard in his sleep. Hunt says they can't leave Pym behind, which makes Guy quite angry, and Hunt is having trouble getting the words out, but eventually he says that Pym is still there, that it was him Hunt, who had met with Poe and not Pym. He says that he knows Dirk Peters, and that he was the one who brought back the manuscript to Poe alone, and that Pym is still out there somewhere. Hunt says a slab of ice knocked their boat, and Peters fell overboard and got separated from the canoe at the end of the novel. Pym gets carried off into the vapors and is shouting to Peters what he sees, which is where the last bit of description in the novel comes from. Peters from there gets carried back to Saul Island via the countercurrent, and finds the island completely deserted. He does find a deserted boat, which he uses to get out of there by the same countercurrents, and eventually is picked up by an American whaling ship, the Sandy Hook, one of New Jersey's finest beaches. Guy asks him in detail about his story, and says that he never suspected that any other men from the Jane were alive, and gets Hunt to reveal that he is indeed Dirk Peters. And Vern even tells us that he's included enough clues in his yarn for his readers to have spotted that Hunt as Peters many ages back, so it wouldn't surprise me if they expected this plot twist. In fact, he would be amazed if they didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we all did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. He d- makes it pretty clear. Um, I had actually forgotten, like, like, it was sort of a... You know, it was a suspicion at some point, and Gretchen and I were sort of talking about it a little bit, and and I kind of thought, oh yeah, I did, I did suspect that, and I had actually forgotten how clear it was at the outset, and that was the first thing I wrote is, yeah. is it Peter's, just <laughs> right. like you, Nate? Had, yeah. Maybe it's a family resemblance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I had two notes right next to each other. The first was, is this Dirk Peters? And then a couple paragraphs down, this is Dirk Peters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it would require knowledge of Pym to pick up on that. I, don't, I can't imagine what Jules Verne audience coming mm-hmm. to this novel without having read this would have made of all this. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I guess it's interesting what the reception of this at the time would have been as it was later on in his career. It's certainly not one of his known books. No, like, it's not. And uh, that was one of the reasons this episode got a little longer than 
we had planned because we were working off the word count of one of the early translations, which cuts out like a good third of the text. Man, we didn't realize the yeah full... they cut out a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I didn't realize that the full text was that much longer. So Jorling and Guy had no suspicions of this because Hunt and Peters had been on the Falklands for several years and was completely unsociable on board, this being the first time they had ever heard him speak. He kept his identity a secret as to not evoke horror. After all, he did kill a man and eat him, but Jorling puts forth an argument for them to continue looking, and that Patterson and the men likely use the same currents that Peters did. So they can't be terribly far, plus they have like two or three months of good weather before winter really sets in. Peters is unsure about guys asking about the final lines of Pym, and it seems clear that Peters hasn't read it, or is possibly totally illiterate. Guy doesn't care about Pym, but wants to rescue the others. However, Hearn and the other sailors want to turn back. Jorling convinces them to stay by saying that for every degree beyond the 84th they pass, the crew will receive $2,000, which is quite a bit of money for that time. Yeah, Jorling just seems to be a walking money bag. Yeah, yeah. Ever so often, I guess he helps out on the ship, but more often it seems like he's sort of annoying the crew and the captain. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can just sort of picture him being, oh, that annoying guy on ship. Like, he's just kind of always saying, hey, we should push on and, like, we should do this and we should do that. <laughs> $2,000! Everybody! Yeah, especially for these, like, rugged disciplinarians who are no-nonsense and want their ship to be run as tight as possible. Yeah. Because that was something else that was taken out of the manuscript. Is In the manuscript, there's a bit of a conflict around Jorling and the crew. And the captain starts snubbing him. Because the captain and the mate are starting to feel like he's being a pain in the ass like around the men and stuff. And, yeah. and all this money. For some reason, that got dropped in the, the book. So, I don't know. Vern once again shying away from conflict? I'm yeah, not it's, sure, it's, really. it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Because that yeah. would have added a nice shade of character to the work which really isn't there that much uh, no it, it does come through in some places but yeah for the most part Vern does shy away from that kind of narrative but it's interesting that his first instinct though was to have it there yeah yeah it is it almost makes me think again like his the influence of his editors and publishers seemed to push him in a certain direction and that was away from more introspection and more conflict it seems mm -hmm. And at this time, he was definitely following a formula. I mean, he was an established name who had a reputation of his books following a certain path and containing certain elements. And I could see when you're at number 44, the temptations yeah. of making it like number 42 and number 43 are, are probably pretty strong. <laughs> yeah, not even the Marvel movies have gotten that far. Um, somebody will probably correct right. me right now. <laughs> right. Is... Yeah. Actually. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> But in private, Jorling, Guy, and West are discussing the situation and the likelihood of mutiny. And Guy decides to scope out the islands in the vicinity of Salal. According to Nunu, there were eight in total, as reliable as this information can be. And after searching for miles, they spot some tiny islands about 50 miles out, much different than what Pym describes. The islands are too small to house anything and would be dangerous to dock there. So they decide to stay a mile away and take in a smaller boat to search for clues. On the island, they see evidence of recent animal bones and plants, including the filberts described at the end of Pym, which Peter's just like grinds down in his teeth through their hard shells. Because when you're eating barnacles, a filbert isn't uh, any challenge. Yeah. 
But based on the evidence of the topography of the land, they suspect there were multiple earthquakes that buried different areas at different times, and Guy and the survivors likely bounced around the islands, avoiding the migrating patterns of the natives. They conclude the obvious place to look next is further south, which they start out upon. Jorling is talking with Peters about Pym, and Peters said he never noticed the strange fear that the natives had of white items. Peters is incredibly unclear on the events of the final pages of Pym, and says his mind went with the canoe at the time, and any questions on the matter should be deferred to Pym. Peters believes that Pym is still alive, but the Halbrane still hasn't found any sign of islands or the more fantastic and weird events that Pym describes. Tensions are building with the crew, despite the larger payouts for moving south, and even worse, Hurley Gurley observes birds flying north, which he takes to mean that winter is setting in, and starts seriously fearing for the morale of the crew. In particular, he is worried about the safety of Peters, who many of the crew blame for extending the voyage further south. Peters asks to talk to Jorling in private, and reveals that Pym deliberately concealed Parker's name. His real name is Ned Holt, brother of the sailmaker on board the Halbrane, and he's worried what will happen if Holt finds out that Peters killed him and ate him. At one point, Peters, a.k.a. Hunt, saved Holt from drowning when he fell overboard. Yeah, uh, But then right. he refused to look at him afterwards. Yeah, right, yeah. And everybody thought that was strange, and at first they were like, oh, this Peters, what a noble guy, like, what a great cat. But he wouldn't talk to any of them, and he wouldn't look at Holt, and gradually the friendliness sort of seemed to dissipate. Yeah, a very... From the weird behavior yeah and sailors are like you know they're such a tight-knit group of team of guys that if somebody's not really not really playing with a team it seems like the mariner instinct might be yeah like shut this guy out like there's something wrong with him kind of thing and yeah it's unfortunate really yep but they hear some shouting outside and it looks like hern briefly abandoned his post and is getting disciplined by west when a shout of land is heard the weather is fair, though a bit misty, which renews Guy's hope that his brother is alive. But this hope is short-lived when the land turns out to be floating icebergs. The Falkland recruits are more forceful about wanting to turn back, and Jorling tries to convince them that they're close to land. Guy orders the ship southwest, and this buys Jorling a couple days' time, but Peters thinks they're headed in the wrong direction. That night, Jorling has a dream where he and Peters go off on their own and encounter the Sphinx of the Ice Realm which changes into Arthur Gordon Pym, huge in size, guardian of the South Pole. But he's suddenly violently shaken awake and thrown about his cabin, and it appears that the Halbrane has collided with something, possibly an iceberg, and there's panic all up on deck. Hurley Gurley says that's exactly what happened. They've collided with an iceberg in the fog, and it's pushed the ship hundreds of feet up into the air above the ocean, and they're totally stranded there. Five men were killed in the crash, and they survey their situation. The iceberg is about 600 to 800 yards around, roughly 130 to 140 feet high. What had happened is the iceberg had slowly risen in the warm waters and overturned, causing this dramatic rise. And time is of the essence. They need to dig some sort of chute down the iceberg to allow the ship to safely slide back in the water, and the iceberg stops moving, putting them at risk for another rise in water and dramatic shift in the iceberg's position. Guy needs to take command of the situation, and does. Fortunately, their instruments are not damaged, and they conclude that they're just 65 miles from the South Pole. 
They've lost some water in the crash, but no worries because they still have the booze. And they can melt off some of the iceberg as frozen ice, no matter where it comes from, doesn't have salt, so it's good to use for drinking water. Hearn keeps in line over the next few days of hard labor, but at this point, pretty much everybody wants to go back except for Jorling and Peters. Hurley Gurley tells Jorling that he heard Hearn and Holt talking about the Grampus, and Jorling is sure something bad is brewing. However, the iceberg suddenly shifts again, causing the Halbrain to violently slide unexpectedly down, crushing three of the crew and splintering the ship in pieces, sinking. There's total panic on the iceberg. Yeah. It's really destructive and, and pretty brutal, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and it happens so fast. I do find it kind of funny. There is that comedic timing of right after the chapter is called Now What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's appropriate, though. <laughs> I'm trying to think what that would be in French. Uh, a man, no? Perhaps? Uh well, we'll get to some of the differences between the French and the English later, because I actually did have to look at the original French. My French is not good enough to really make a lot out of it. I, mean, I certainly wouldn't want to read the book in French, because I'm just not that good at it. But uh, yeah, it's an interest, interesting. So it was quite brutal the way he described the... Like, it, it just happened so fast. Yeah. And it was unexpected. Like... A few pages before, I was actually, I was really impressed with um, the way Vern, like, I mean, it wasn't just the way he described it, but it was the thing itself, was the massive, incredible amount of teamwork that was going into trying to deal with their present situation, and what to do with the provisions on the ship, how to store them, where to put the ship, how we're going to move it. Like, even the, the sailors that were uncooperative, pitched in you know like everybody was pitching in and everybody was coordinated and it was just so nice like it was so beautiful to see the way Vern described the coordination of all these people doing all this work and then in like a few lines it's all gone to hell it's very dramatic and he is very good at punctuating it like that yeah and he goes into this a bit in journey to the center of the earth of the immense majesty and power of nature because you know for all the teamwork you can do when the iceberg shifts the wrong way it's several hundred feet in size it's gonna crush stuff and there's nothing you can do about it a very good scene mm, yeah it leaves our crew in total panic and only the dinghy boat is left which isn't big enough to hold them all and several of the falklands recruits try to make for it take it off the iceberg and leave west says to hold or they'll fire on anybody who tries to take it, and West indeed shoots one who doesn't heed. Hurley Gurley shoots another, and Peters goes down to the boat and holds it in place. The mutineers rush him, but he easily fights them off, and this puts a stop to it. Guy says that the dinghy, this is now the Halbrain, and he's still the captain, and woe to anybody who forgets it. Jorling, Guy, and West are debating what to do, and Jorling is convinced that land is near, by the virtue that geographers are convinced that the pole is sitting on solid land. The iceberg might not hold them for the winter, plus it might flip them again, so they need to figure out what they're going to do. Endicott, the black cook, is the only one who isn't stressed about the situation, and there's a bit of racism from Byrne here in that he says that this is because and he's content with his lot in life being of a <laughs> lower social order. And it came off to me more like... Uh... It was trying to be complimentary, but in a sort of a backhand way. Yeah. You know, he was yeah. trying to say, P 
people people like him are easygoing. Like they've learned to be chill with anything. And it could be that they've had much adversity to overcome and that's why they're that way. But he doesn't really specify, so it does come off a bit like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there also is that part earlier where they're talking about how the cook on the Grampus was black. Right. And they're like, but our black cook wouldn't do that because he's, he's good. Yeah, right. <laughs> it doesn't age well, that's for sure, those elements. No. But... And yeah, the other thing that doesn't age well is, so I mean, <laughs> we can't ignore this. So all throughout this book, Peters is referred to as a half-breed yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. All the time. And it's not just once or twice. You know, then I would just be like, okay, whatever. They're trying to say that he's, he's, Burns trying to say that he's a different, you know, different set apart from the other men. But it's like every page where he is uh, in the story, or he's mentioned, it's probably he's called that as often as he is actually named. Yeah. So I ran into this. I think all of us probably cringed a little bit when we read that so often. <laughs> But here's the thing with the translation and with the problems of translation. So, I mean, we could talk about this later, but it seems like a good place to sort of break into it since we we, we were talking about the race stuff just a minute ago. Yeah. In French, the word that Verne uses to describe Peters is métis. And the word métis literally just means mixed. And it's kind of interesting because Peters is half Native American. And for the last several hundred years, there's actually been a culture in the west of Canada and the United States called the Métis. We call them the Métis mostly in English. We don't pronounce the S in English so much, but it's a capitalized word, a proper noun. And it refers to a distinct culture with its own, you know, its own traditions, its own language, which is a mix of French with a bit of Cree. And... They have this whole thing, you know, along the 49th parallel called, they call it the medicine line. And it's a thing. And, you know, like, I don't think Vern was referring to that because he doesn't, it's not capitalized. But the thing is, Métis was originally a word that referred to any mixed person of usually French and indigenous heritage. So you would see Métis perhaps referring to Senegalese or Algerians. Right. I think the word mestizo in Spanish is used to refer to the same thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. I didn't think of that, but I've heard that word before. So it's it's probably does come from the same Latin root, which means right. mixed. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there's no great way to say that in English. Metis sounds fairly innocuous. I don't think... I could be wrong, but I actually spoke with a couple of French speakers about this. And the word metis is quite innocuous and not offensive. Whereas the word half-breed is very... Yeah. You can't say that. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So it's a really interesting quandary. And I'm actually a little bit annoyed that the translator, because he wrote so much in the notes and the afterword and everything, he never addressed this. And he even put half-breed in quotes at one point in the beginning when he was talking about it, like he wanted to sort of distance himself from it. Yeah. <laughs> but I would, I would remind him that that is his word choice. Yeah. Uh, He didn't have to use that. But on the other hand, I don't really see what else he could have said because every way you try to express that in English sounds really clumsy if you're going to use it like several times in one paragraph. I suppose they might be able to use just the word Métis and maybe have like a footnote or something that explains it. 
that's how I would do it. I personally don't see why he didn't do that, but it seems like the couple of Americans I talked to about it didn't really recognize the word, and he said several times that he was writing this for an American audience, but he could have just made a note about that, maybe, yeah, and just, right. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd decision, so. I do see his quandary in that I really can't think of any good way to, like, single word to use in English, and if you're going to use it as often as Vernon does, you pretty much have to use a single word, and look at him, he's even resorted to using a hyphenated English word like you know he's really struggling and it kind of makes me see sometimes a language is limiting and maybe English is just limited in that way that it doesn't have the right words to express certain things I mean I'm not saying that the French are less racist or anything like that's obviously not true but just the way that the the language is it's very it just says simply what it is and it's not like it doesn't have any of the negative connotations that that English word does right because every time every time I read that the more often it appeared, instead of getting used to it, like, I just got more and more, like, kind of annoyed, right? Because especially mm-hmm. because Peters is by far the most interesting character in the book, right? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, and, definitely. And, uh, yeah, and I don't feel like it's fair to just call, like, do you, like, put him in that box all right. the time, yeah. right? Yeah. I would like to know more from the, what, what the translators were thinking, but Peters is now guarding the dinghy, and there is a, another huge crash. And it seems like another iceberg has collided with theirs. Fortunately, they don't lose any important supplies, but are now moving again. And by January 30th, they're about 40 miles from the pole. They secure the rest of their supplies in the event of another collision, and more or less prepare to just wait it out wherever the iceberg lands. Peters approaches Jorling and is suspicious that the Falklands crew know about his secret regarding Holt. And something is definitely going on with Hernan Holt. And a mist is shrouding the area, and Jorling starts to hallucinate like Pym, like their minds have converged into one. Here is a footnote from Vern himself, putting Captain Nemo in the same universe as he too visited the South Pole, but decades later in 1868. So that's pretty neat. Yeah. Pym's real and Captain Nemo's real. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. The Vern extended universe. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it is cool to think that all these Les Voyages Extraordinaires happened, like, in the same, like, they really did happen in the same universe. Yeah, and it's not implausible, and there's, like, 55 of them published in Verne's lifetime, so a lot more published afterwards. So mm-hmm. Marvel has mm-hmm. a ways to catch up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm sure they'll get there someday. Yeah, they're probably close now, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like they've passed the pole and are coming up on the other side towards Australia and New Zealand. Jorling speculates that maybe the crew of the Jane had come this way and are also being put out in the Pacific, but several months ahead of them. The mist is still thick, and a Quabrante Oisos, which is a giant petrel, collides with Hurley Gurley. They start to hear braying sounds indicative of penguins and also of seals and walruses, which would be a good indication that there's actual solid land nearby. However, visibility is only about a quarter mile, and Peters briefly disappears. When the fog clears, land is indeed spotted, and Peters then reappears, but the land looks barren and desolate. Jorling still wants to disembark to look for clues, even though the time window is very limited. The iceberg seems to get caught in some kind of eddy, and slows down considerably, making the going-to-shore option more attractive. The land looks like volcanic activity formed the island, Hardened lava with no vegetation. 
They make it to the top of a hill, allowing them to see about 35 miles out, which leads them to conclude that they've found themselves in a street. There are hollowed-out caverns of granite on shore, allowing for easy and good storage of their supplies, and over the next few days they use the dinghy to transfer over supplies in the men and set up camp there. Guy discusses the idea of drawing straws for who will take the dinghy out to sea to try to make for the Pacific, but three men have taken it out already. Ten men are trying to overpower Peters, and Holt seems to stay out of it. Guy and West are outnumbered, and Hearn yells to Holt that Peters killed him and ate him. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. He's, like, screaming at the top of his voice. (laughs) He's going, Eaten! He was eaten! Eaten! (laughs) It says one way to motivate him into action there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But Holt is pulled onto the boat, and one of the Falklanders is grabbed by Peters and just has his head smashed up against a rock. Hearn shoots Peters in the shoulder, and Guy and West come out with their weapons. The dinghy is about 200 yards off the shore. West takes a shot with his rifle, hitting one of the mutineers, and soon they are out of range and out of sight, and nine are left on the island. Jorling, Peters, West, Guy, Endicott, Hurley Gurley, two seamen, and the cocker. Peters has gone somewhere, and Jorling is worried that he's so ashamed now that his secret is out. Jorling suspects Hearn was stalking him and eavesdropping on when Peters told him his secret. And as Hearn needed Holt as a sailor to get him back, he slowly buttered him up to be on his side. A few hours later, they find Peters and give him medical aid. The bullet in his shoulder was only a flesh wound and passed right through. Hurley Gurley thinks they have it better here than those in the dinghy, as they're on solid land with good supplies. They named their island Halbrain Land and the Jane Strait for the body of water. There are enough animals present for them to hunt, penguins, walruses, tortoises, and so on. And one day, Hurley Gurley spots a canoe drifting with no oars or paddles, and Peter dives in the water to capture it. It contains four men on board, lying in the bottom, one of them being Guy. And the two brothers embrace and fill each other in on what happened. So, going back to the Guy from Pym, after the avalanche trap, it turns out that not all the men were killed, and that seven men survived. After they escape the rubble to a concealed place, they see the canoes attack the Jane and the explosion. Guy and his crew were still on the island weeks after Pim and Peters leave, and the natives one day are absolutely frightened by Tiger, who was all white and in a mad state from rabies, and Tiger causes the villagers to desert after yeah. biting several transmitting rabies from them. And look, uh, while while the like monster dog attack who like managed to kill all the islanders either quickly or slowly through rabies was pretty pretty awesome. Yeah. I just can't I I just don't I think that if Tiger had been with them, Pim would have mentioned him. I, it was weird that Burn decided yeah. to do this. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like this explanation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I mean Okay, cool. Terrible rabies epidemic. That's pretty brutal. And just crazy mad dog attacking everyone. And oh yeah, the dog's white, by the way. So of course the Islanders, yeah, you know, they hate that. As a sequel to Pim, it doesn't really work. Like there's just no, no talk of them bringing Tiger on shore with them in the book. So <laughs> the fact that he's apparently still around in this is just strange. Especially considering how rational Vern is. Like Vern just really seems to... He wants to rationalize all Poe's weird edges, which, mm-hmm. honestly, it's it's sort of endearing, but it's also kind of irritating at the same time. Like, yeah. it's kind of like, stop yeah. it. 
<laughs> yeah, he wants and to demystify the mystification. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely what he's doing. And th- this feels very much like a Jules Verne sequel to Poe. You mentioned right. Lovecraft in the discussion when we talked about Pym. He very much yeah. goes in the other direction. Oh, yeah. I, I think you could look at Verne and Lovecraft being opposites in a lot of ways, where they both try to emphasize different things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, like, how did Tiger get rabies? Like, what mammal was on this island to bite Tiger yeah, it, that was already rabid? It suggested that, yeah, when he attacked Pym, it suggested he was already rabid, and then yeah. it was okay. Yeah, but rabies doesn't yeah. work that way, and like, yeah. I, I think they might have known that at the time, and yeah. I don't know... Was it mentioned that Tiger was white in the original novel? Because Poe describes him as being a Newfoundland, and Newfoundlands are normally, like, black or, like, really dark-colored, which is how I picture Tiger looking. Yeah, I don't think it was ever mentioned, no. Yeah. So, yeah, it is very strange. It's a strange addition, and I wonder why Byrne did that. Like, did he he just have a desire to have the dog play a bigger part? Like... If he was bothered by the fact that the dog just disappeared from the narrative, he could have just explained it away by saying he was washed overboard, which is yeah. what I assumed. Yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, what I assumed. Which is yeah. what I would assume the rationalist Vern would do as well. But he didn't. Yeah. I can't figure it out. <laughs> I think he just wanted a vicious dog attack in his book, maybe. <laughs> Another Poe reference. Yeah, right. Yeah. But he tries to one-up them, so he gives them rabies instead of just biting their throats out. <laughs> but yeah, that, this is probably the thing that I like the least about Vern's continuation. I, I was fine with most of the other stuff that he did with the lore, even if it is a very sobering, demystifying look at the original text. The other thing I didn't, I, didn't, I just, I don't know, it, it somewhat sometimes frustrates me about Vern too, is that he's into exploring all these lands, and it's so, like, he does it so well, and he's so, like, He's very actually imaginative imaginative with the descriptions and he does like he does make you think pretty far out thoughts sometimes with the way he describes things, but there's so little habitation. Like there's no people. Yeah. Yeah. There's never any people. It's always just the explorers. They never I mean, maybe a couple times in twenty thousand leagues they encounter people, but like when they get to Salal Island here, it's deserted. Yeah. And that I don't know, to me that's like it's sort of a desolate, cool, lonely, deserted picture, but it's also kind of disappointing that there's no. He didn't decide to sort of do a, a rematch with the the islanders, or maybe encounter the other tribe of islanders who are more technologically advanced. I mean, maybe they're more in yeah. line with the Simsonians who are beyond the American and British ship technologies. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who, who knows. <laughs> Surprisingly, Vern never went there, like yeah. in any in anything that I know about. Yeah, and um, there's always like the lone inventor, like Nemo, who has technological superiority, but he never wrote like a lost world novel with a sophisticated ancient race that was discovered somewhere. Right, right. It's just all his new uncovered lands are deserted. Yeah, which is strange. <laughs> To be fair, though, he's not all into colonialism. I mean, he does talk smack about that very often. Yeah, he does. So, yeah. Too bad about Tiger. Yeah. R.I.P. Tiger. The crew is able to stay there for 11 years. So food is plentiful, and they don't have any more incidents with the natives. I guess they figured out how to avoid them. But one day, Patterson goes missing, and he's found by the Halbrain crew dead on the iceberg. And then the devastating earthquake hits forcing them to leave in their canoe where a few starve. They decide to leave in the canoe and pack it up with supplies. And 
with these paddles and a makeshift sail, the 13 survivors set off. A while later, they encounter electric snowstorms and polar auroras, along with temperature drops. By mid-March, they're enshrouded in fog, and when it clears, they see a strange rocky formation, like a huge sphinx. The speed of the canoe increases, and the iron and metal items on board seem to be moving around very strangely. It would appear that they're in some strong magnetic field, and as they get closer, they see the halbrane dinghy on shore, broken up and splintered. All traces of iron are gone. They see three corpses of Holt, Hearn, and one of the Falklanders, and the Sphinx appears to be a giant lodestone, oxidized for years in these polar conditions by the electrical storms. If the canoe had been built with metal, it would have suffered the same fate as the dinghy smashed up against the rocks at incredible speed. It's actually one of the island canoes, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. So as they get closer to the Sphinx, they see all the metal objects that passed anywhere near it stuck to it. By the Sphinx, they find the corpse of Pym and his rusted rifle, likely pulled to it with such incredible force and unable to escape. Peters tries to kiss his remains, but falls back and dies on the spot. He screams, It's Pym! It's Pym! Poor Pym! And then he's gone. Yeah. Kind of a touching scene. I shed a tear. Yeah, this was actually, this was like, this probably, the climax was worth it. I, I, I do think that it's slightly aggravating that Vern seems to want to demystify Poe at every turn, but I still thought the ending was very... Well, it's not quite the ending. There's still one more chapter, but yeah. I, I thought that that climactic scene was still very haunting. Yeah. And the image of him stuck to this rock, like, forever, turned into a skeleton. Nobody can move him ever now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's just... it It was horrible, but awesome at the same time. I, I like that a lot. It's a death fitting for Pym, and Poe was certainly yeah. one to give out good deaths that he kind of didn't give Pym in his novel. He just said, well, Pym's dead doing something. Now we find out that Poe was right, even though the Poe of the Vern novel would have no way of knowing that yeah. due to how we set it up. But yeah, it's, it's a good end to Pym and his struggles. But the remaining 12 men push off with their canoe and ride the current out with food, booze, and shelter. They fortunately encounter a ship who picks them up and brings them back to safety. And the novel ends with Jorling saying that others must follow in their footsteps to learn the secrets of the Sphinx. Yeah, the secrets of the Sphinx. Very appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a pretty cool continuation. I mean, it definitely is a Jules Verne take on the story. It is a little long, and while I don't think it reached the heights of some of his other novels, it doesn't really bog down. Like, he is good at keeping the story moving forward. 
at all times. And I think that the climax of the novel, yeah, it, it's, it's good. And it's a fitting ending. He probably could have trimmed it down a little bit to make it a little stronger. But overall, I thought this was good. I like this one. I thought it was good. I mean, I, I did struggle a little bit. And, and I think it's, it's the usual thing with Vern for me is that there's just not enough conflict to sustain my interest sometimes. And it's just like long descriptive passages of stuff. And sometimes it's really interesting. Like, Sometimes it's really evocative, and I really like it, but sometimes it does seem to go on for too long, and I had the same reaction to 20,000 Leagues a little bit, even though I really like that one. I actually, in a way, it's my favorite burn so far, but there was a certain part in the middle here where it did seem to bog down, and I knew when the... I knew that the the twist with Peters was going to come eventually, and I was just kind of waiting for it to come. I was like, when is it going to come? When is it going to come? And it was... In his defense, it was a great sense of relief when it did come, and I actually really liked I liked the way he depicted that scene. It was, there was the I don't know, Peters was very I thought he was very sympathetic and there were a lot of good things pointed out in the sense that even though it's a very old book and a lot of things about trauma and mental health and stuff were not very well understood at that time, he still did a really good job of making us feel like we can't push this person too far. He's been through a lot. It made me feel very sympathetic toward him. And I think he did a better job of depicting him as an actual character than Poe did, in a way. Yeah. Because he gave him something to strive for, some kind of goal. And we didn't really get the sense of the affection that apparently grew between Peters and Pym during Pym's book. Because, I don't know, if that was a thing, Pym was probably oblivious to it. Because Pym was probably <laughs> oblivious in general. Like, yeah. it just seems like... <laughs> He didn't pick up all, a lot of things, so, you know, he didn't realize maybe what how Peters thought about him. Maybe Peters didn't show that much affection. Maybe he did, but we just don't know, right? But and according to him, anyway, he felt such great affection for Pym that he was haunted for all this time and wanting so badly to go back to him. And it actually kind of broke my heart that he was wrong and that yeah. Pym had died so long ago. He had this such a... This, this great confidence and conviction that he was holding on to, that Pym was still alive. And the fact that Len was right, and that his brother was still around, and Peters was wrong, that was kind of sad. Yeah. I didn't care that much about Pym. I just wanted Peters to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, uh, you're talking about, Nate, your, your idea about, the land they entered being Simpsonia. Uh, that's a pretty far out theory, I must say. So yeah. <laughs> we're, that's what we're about on this podcast though. We do this kind of thing. So, and I do this other thing that's really irritating and I'm going to say how I would have liked this book more if it was more Gothic and if it was more from Peter's perspective and the book had ended with him dying. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't need that last chapter at all. No. Cause obviously they got home safe and everything. So like, let's say Peter's was, the first person narrator and Jorling's just this guy who has all this money, right? And like, we don't care about him. We just care about Pim. So, and Peters is like talking about how driven he is. And I mean, we don't, the thing is like, we know from the way he talks and stuff that Peters maybe wouldn't be keeping a diary or he wouldn't be writing all this down. But I think it could still have been done and it would have been an interesting, maybe darker, more gothic sort of tale if it was done that way. But that's not Jules Verne. So. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> so this is actually the first Vern work I've ever read. Okay. Which is kind of interesting to say. It's I, I think this is a pretty unusual choice, but yeah. I thought it was good. I, I thought it was, it did take me a bit also to get through, even though I do think that there were quite a few parts that were pretty snappy. And when we were talking yeah. about the dialogue in Pym, I feel like this is kind of the opposite. There's oh, a lot more. more dialogue. There is yeah, a lot of dialogue. That actually helped this book a lot, that there yeah, was more definitely. of that. Because it's very snappy, and there is a lot of humor, and most of it works. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was good. I, I'm i not as crazy about Vern's attempts to demystify Poe, but I did enjoy that climax, and I do feel really bad for Peters. Yeah, poor, uh, yeah. poor Peters. Poor Peters. I agree. I definitely prefer the fantastic elements of Poe, and I think that's something that Poe really does really well, and... It's interesting that Vern was more fascinated by the down-to-earth, science-y, rational explanations for things and just yes. never really took any of his works in that direction. And I think if, if he was interested in the gothic and the supernatural, you'd think that that would pop up in at least one story, but I don't think it ever does. Walter does actually mention, and, and I think we've come across reference a couple of times to Vern dabbling just a little bit more into the occult and strange. But it's not something he does very often at all. I think that he doesn't really believe in such things, so I think if he has trouble, you know, it's just hard for him to... It's not his style. But I think that a couple of times he may sort of go into that territory. But he he's the kind of author that does definitely try to provide a rational explanation for everything. And yep. to be fair, Poe's mostly like that as well. Poe's the tales of ratiocination, like his... Otherworldliness is more to do with psychological states, and in the afterword to Sphinx, Walter does suggest that he thinks, anyway, likely that Poe, if he had carried on the narrative, would have rationalized everything, and that he would have probably had a reasonable, non-supernatural explanation for the events at the end of the book. Yeah, but it's possible. We'll never know. Right. Yep. So this is a first for us. This is the first time we've done a fan-oriented sequel. Yeah. I think we're going to be doing more in the future. Later down the road, we're going to get into some of the more well-known fan fiction origins of Star Trek and Doctor Who and all that stuff. But it's interesting to see that it starts out in the 19th century and possibly earlier with some unauthorized sequels. I mean, I guess you could say that Edison's Conquest of Mars was kind of a sequel to War of the Worlds, but, I mean, not really in the sense that this is. I mean, this constantly references the Pym universe throughout the novel and builds upon it in a way that Service just didn't do to Wells at all. Service didn't do it, but he definitely did intend it as a sequel for, if no other purpose, than, like, sort of a financial, maybe, or, like, a kind of a, Mm. right, a cashing-in kind of sequel, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, uh, as Gretchen was saying, it's Jules Verne fanboying the entire time over <laughs> Poe, and it's, it's it's really cool to read that. I think if that element wasn't there, this would have made this novel a little less enjoyable for me, but mm-hmm. yeah, just, just seeing that throughout the entirety of the novel, I really liked reading that. Yeah, it's yeah. really delightful. There's also that one bit, I, I cannot remember which chapter it is, that he names after a chapter of, like, in one of Pym's chapters, yeah. he names a chapter the same, and he has to point that out so everyone knows. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's cool. Yeah, I, I kind of thought that 
the references to him were definitely like all over this and obviously it was very deliberate and like like you said i i because pym wasn't that popular i kind of wonder like if people read this and did not read pym were they moved by it in the same right. way did they how yeah. did they feel about it now one thing that's interesting though was that baudelaire translated all of poe's fiction into french and to this day, I keep seeing over and over again that he is the definitive French translation of Poe, even now. Mm-hmm. And his translations have considerable literary merit. So, I mean, as you might expect from Baudelaire, I suppose. Yeah. And that's what Verne would have read. Now, interestingly, in the English, Pym, the chapters are not named, but Baudelaire did assign names to all the chapters in Pym. Right. And the last chapter is actually called The White Giant. In French, of course. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. It is. Mm. Some of those little differences really can impact your perception on the work. Yeah. If you, I mean, we won't, there's, there's just too much to go into, but if you actually would like to read this book, if you get this translation, there's a whole lot of material in the back talking about Baudelaire's translations, talking about the translations of the previous translation of this book, which was an Antarctic mystery, and so many other things that all tie together. And it makes for an interesting read that's almost as interesting as the book itself, really. It, yeah, it's certainly the definitive edition of the text that exists at, at this point in time. So now that we've covered two well-known authors who were very prolific in their day, we're going to move to a much more obscure figure who really only wrote one novel that is not particularly read, but it's certainly a very interesting one. 